I remind you, of course, to turn your cell phones to silent if you haven't, or turn them off. If you do have to keep them on, I do encourage you to set your ringtone notification to someone's voice saying amen. That would make it a little easier or less obnoxious when it goes off. Today we'll be looking at faith, hope, and love, something we should all be familiar with, those three things. I don't expect anything I say today to be too surprising, but rather, like Peter when he wrote, I expect to remind you always of these good things, to stir you up to good works. So picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, oh, that's Andy's notes, let me, all right. I checked with him, like, you still, you're still sticking with Corinthians 8, I didn't want to get into, into that and preach on the same thing. But beginning in 1 Corinthians 13, so Andy will be getting to there um, shortly, another few lessons, but if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, it has that verse we should all be familiar with, faith, hope, and love. And before we begin with our scriptures and then looking at faith and some examples and hope and some examples and love and some examples, I'd like to ask you a question, and I'd like to ask if you're willing to raise your hand if the answer is yes. So I'll ask a question. And if you're willing, raise your hand if it's a yes. And the question is, do you feel God's presence here this morning? That was scattered in the results. Because that's, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a what, do you, what do you mean by feel? Do you mean do I feel it in my heart? Do I feel a certain feeling? I understand why not everyone's hand went up right away or at all. We know in scriptures that God's presence is with us. We know when there's a trouble with a brother or two or three are gathered in my name, God's presence dwells among us, God the Spirit is with us. So let me ask a second question. Do you know that God's presence is here? Everyone's hand goes up. We know that. There's a conflict sometimes with what we feel and what we know. And it makes it so tough. I know God loves me. I know I have faith. I know I have hope. But sometimes I feel differently. Isn't that what many of the Psalms are about? The writer crying out to God, God, I know you're good, but I feel right now that things are bad. God, I have faith in you, but oh, can you save me, please? Now I don't feel good. It's tough to put what we feel and what we know together. So when we look at these words, faith, hope, and love, in 1 Corinthians 13, we have, of course, faith, hope, and love. And one of the things in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is the fact that you can have all knowledge, but if you have not love, you don't have anything. So then we understand that knowledge is important, but not without love. So as we go through faith and then hope and then love, let us not forget that these are exclusive of each other. Let us not think, oh, I can have one of these and not have the other. We need all three of them. So looking at faith first, one of the first passages that I always, I say always, but I lately always think of in regards to faith, is in Luke chapter 17. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 17, and he says to them many things. In verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. And that's a, that's a phrase that 
you got to be very careful with, right? i got to be very careful with. Pay attention to yourselves. Because if I spend all my time and attention on myself, well, then I'm a narcissist, right? I'm just always bond me. I'm always talking about me. But I do have to pay a certain amount of attention to myself. When Paul's writing to uh, other people in the New Testament, to younger preachers, he says one of the things is, take care how you preach and devote yourself to it so that you may save yourself and others. So save yourself and others others. So there's this idea that you can be talking and teaching and you might save yourself and you might save others or you could save others and lose yourself or you could be saved yourself and not be helping save others. So I do have to be careful. Every single one of us has to be careful that we don't forget to pay a little bit of attention to ourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So he's just told the apostles, you got to have the willingness to forgive your brother, and you better never, ever, ever cause a brother or sister to stumble. And the apostles hear that, and their immediate reply is to Jesus, we need more faith. That is going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Have you ever struggled to forgive somebody? Have you ever inadvertently put a stumbling block in someone else's way? It's hard not to sometimes. And their response is, Lord, we need more faith. So faith is something that can be increased. Faith is something that sometimes maybe different people have a different measure of. So it is a mistake to ever assume I have faith and that it is a static thing that does not change. Our faith should always be increasing. Standing firm in the faith does not mean staying in one place. It means continuing on, going on, abounding in faith, adding to these things, and so on and so forth, always getting closer and closer and closer to God. When I think of faith, I also think of the fact that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So a question then arises, which voices am I hearing? Which voices am I listening to? In the book of Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 3, there's a warning against listening to your own voice. In Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 3, speaking to the people, it said, the pride of your own heart has deceived you. Now, I know we talk about sometimes about the heart being deception, excuse me, being deceptive or full of deceit and wicked, so you can't trust your own heart, lean not in your own understanding. This passage in Obadiah I like because it specifically attaches pride to this issue of self-deception. The pride of your own heart has deceived you. So, you know, they say it's okay to hear voices in your head, and it's when you start talking back to them that there's a problem, but we always have some sort of little voice going on of our own. What does that voice of yours tell you, and do you listen to it? Can you trust your own voice? Can you trust your own heart? Can you trust your own mind? And I will tell you, don't listen to what I say about this. Don't listen to what other people say. Go straight to the scripture and see what God says over and over. God speaking to his people says, lean not on your own understanding. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads unto death. How much do I trust myself? Do I think, oh, I'm right. I'm smart. I know all the knowledge. I know all the things. I'm right. You know, when it comes to the, having knowledge, I can have all knowledge, but if I have not love, it's nothing. 
And the knowledge that I do have, what do I do with it? Do I have actual knowledge of God? When I hear, does it increase my faith or does it increase my own sense of, I've done really well, that's a scripture, yep, I got that one. Or when I hear the word, does it increase my faith in God instead of myself and what I've accomplished? If you would turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, another passage that should be very familiar to all of us, we read there that do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So not only my voice, but this voice of the world I could listen to, the voices of other people, the voices of people maybe I've never even met, If I pick up a book by someone who I've never met and I read it and I think that's good stuff and I apply it to my life, am I putting my faith in the author of that book? Do I hear something on the radio, on TV, you know, bestseller, professor, whatever. Those other people. And so I'm not talking here, when I say other voices, I'm not saying people who we've developed a relationship with in our church family, in our community, who we respect and love and treasure their advice because when we go to them, they say, let's go to the scripture and let's make sure we're getting our advice from the scripture. I'm not talking about that. When I say other voices, I mean the world. Who's in my brain? The movies I watch, the books I read, the things I hear and listen to. What are the voices? Does my brain get conformed? Because my brain... And most people's brains loves to latch on to things. It loves to hold fast to probably usually the first thing I hear. Or, ooh, that sounds really good. That sounds good. I'm going to take those. I'm going to hold fast to them. And if someone says something different, I like these things. Our brains just hold fast. The Bible is full of examples of this, right? We could look at modern examples of people who do studies that say the brain forms habits. The brain likes to believe things that it hears first. The brain remembers things that it hears last. And all of those studies, remember that if you give science enough time, it catches up with the Bible. The Bible has plenty to say about habits. Train up a child and the way he goes, he won't depart from it. If he gets latched on and holds on to the word of God properly, he won't let go of it. If we have a seared conscience, we're latching on and holding on to things that tell us otherwise, our brain just gets stuck on it, and it's harder and harder to let go. So what we hold fast to has a very big impact on our faith and our hope and our love. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis in chapter 41. For an example of faith, this, of course, is going to be looking at Joseph. And the more I read Joseph, about Joseph, Every time, I I think less of God rewarding Joseph and more of just how rough it is for Joseph. Because I know for years, whenever I read the story of Joseph, I would look at it and go, oh man, he had a tough time, but then then he gets in Potiphar's household after they sold him into slavery. So that's good. God's taking care of him. Hold on. And then he gets put in prison. And then God's with them and gets him out of prison. And he's, he's with Pharaoh now. And he's, he's a, over all the nation. Good. Just hold on. But I'm not so sure that that's the main message of why Genesis 41 is here in our Bible. Because when we look in Genesis chapter 41, sure, Joseph is in a position of power in Egypt. He's in a position where he has wealth. He gets a wife. If we look in Genesis chapter 41... And beginning in verse 44, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. This breaks my heart for Joseph. What is there to celebrate here? He has an unbelieving boss, Pharaoh. A Pharaoh, remember Pharaohs thought they were gods. His very existence is blasphemous to God. He gets an unbelieving wife. Should we celebrate that? Is that what we want for our children? I hope you get a job and work for someone who doesn't believe in God and is blasphemous, and I hope you get an unbelieving wife. Is that what we want? He gets all this wealth. It breaks my heart at this moment. This is not a celebration for Joseph that God's rewarding him with all these nice physical materialistic things. It should break our hearts. And then he has sons, and we learn more about what Joseph is feeling with what he names his sons. When he names his sons, if we turn, excuse me, Joseph was 30 years old when he went into the land of Egypt. And then in verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. Now this here doesn't mean that he literally forgot all about it. It means he's not holding on to that. He's, I'm not going to hold on to all this hardship. I'm, not, I, I'm here where I am. I have to do what I can do, where I am, bound by the circumstances of where God has put me. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So to Joseph, this is affliction still. He is not enjoying it. He is not having fun. He is not thinking, wow, I've got the good life. He is feeling afflicted. So this message that we have here is not about God rewarding Joseph with material wealth and giving him an unbelieving wife and an unbelieving ruler, but it's the power of of God using circumstances to save his people. When I read the story of Joseph, my faith increases. He uses Joseph, so when his brothers come to him and they bow down, just like it was in the vision of the brothers bowing down to him and his father and mother, it's about that moment where God saves his people. God saves. Doesn't that increase your faith? When we look at Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, if you would turn there, this faith, as we hear about stories, as we hear about Joseph, as we hear about others, we read in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then beginning in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This story from Abraham to his descendants shows God keeping his promises. And as we read through the Bible, we don't have time for our first lesson, certainly, and even in a normal day to read it straight through, but over and over we see God keeping his promises and his promises to save us to redeem us. It's all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. He puts enmity between the serpent and the seed of woman. And he says, but your seed shall bruise the head of the serpent. I promise you, he's saying, salvation. I promise you redemption. It's wonderful to consider that these 
individuals we read about, Abraham and Joseph, all the way through, these are our ancestors. I mean that perhaps literally, more so figuratively, but these people are not so distant from us. There's many generations between them and us, but how many truly? If you take the average age of a generation, you go back 84 generations, and we're in the time of the new church, the new covenant, the New Testament time. It's hard to imagine all the millions and billions of people over all the thousands of years, but can you imagine 84 people just in a straight line? I don't know if we've counted yet today, Andy. We have maybe 40 or 50 right now, so you take maybe an extra 20 or 30 people and put them in here. It's easy to imagine 80-ish people, 84 people. You can imagine 100 people in a straight line going back. That's how far we are from this. It's not that far. 100, 150 people, and we're back into the Old Testament. We are not too far removed. Think of increasing your faith by looking at these individuals as our family tree. And certain things run in families. What runs in your family? In your physical family, you might think, oh, well, we have this trait and this and that and so on and so forth. What about our family tree in relation to the Bible, to our story, to God our Father? Are going back through Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, who we all come from? What are our family traits? Are our family traits faith, hope, and love? Is that what people see in us? Do they go, I see where you got your faith, hope, and love. You got it from who you learned it from. I think when it comes to hope of the fact that we do have it in the first place, which seems like something that should go without saying, but many things go without saying, and I don't want to go without saying them, but we do have a very specific hope. If you think back to the book of Genesis, the very first couple chapters, what do you see? You see God creates heaven and earth, a new heaven and earth at that time. Then he creates people, and they're in the garden, and there's the tree of life, and everything beautiful and good. And then something false enters in, ruins things. That's the beginning. And the Bible, mind you, Bible is a word that means books, comes from Biblia. So our book, as we refer to it, is full of many different books. We got our letters, we have our poetry, we have our accounts, we have our narratives, we have our history. We have so many beautiful books in our Bible. It's a library for us to look to. And the people who wrote it were moved by the Spirit of God, and all Scripture is profitable for many things. Certain parts of it I look at, though, as the beginning or the foreword and then the end or the afterward, or kind of maybe the prologue and the epilogue. In those first couple chapters of Genesis, God is perhaps telling Moses exactly word for word when he's writing it down. This is what happened in the garden. This is how it began. And then when we go to the last couple chapters of Revelation, have you noticed how they parallel to those first couple chapters of Genesis? However, instead of the new heaven and earth first, God has created a new people He's regenerating us. He's redeeming us. He's saving us. And then he says, there's going to come a new heavens and earth. And in this one, again, the tree of life. So you can live and be saved. And in the last couple chapters of Revelation, this vision from God given to John by the angel, written down word for word, God saying, this is how it ends. He says over and over, nothing false will enter in. It's not like the first garden where temptation and deception, whether of self or others and who we listen to, whether we listen to Satan, the world, whether we listen to someone we trust, like Adam just listened to his wife and did what she said, 
Whether, what, none of that falseness comes in. That's something that I look forward to and hope. A garden, a place, a city where there's nothing false. Now, when it comes to love, oh, where do I even begin with love? I'd ask if you turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And again, we have not the time. My hope today is, is to, a, a few things, a few hopes that I have specifically for this lesson, right? I, regarding this lesson, I have faith that the word of God does not return to him void and that you will hear it and it will act on you. And if it pricks your heart, it won't just prick your heart, but you'll actually change. And myself too, right? I preach to myself as much as to any of you. I don't expect myself to be perfect. So when I read these words and I think, oh, wow, I increased my faith, whatever. My hope goes, yes, I expect myself to change, be better. So my first hope is my, my faith in the word of God, and then my hope is that you will read the word of God more. If you take away nothing from what I'm saying today, but it thinks, oh, I want to look more at that Genesis versus Revelation comparison. I want to look again at the story of Joseph. I want to look again at these examples. You know what? Man, I, maybe I should look at that story of, of Genesis um, when God is with the Israelites on the mountain, and he gives them the law, and they all say, we will obey. We will do all these things. Yeah, that's kind of like a marriage ceremony, isn't it? God says, will you be my people? And they say, we will. I do. And then they proceed to cheat on God. And they proceed to ignore God. And they proceed to not give him attention. Look at it as a marriage ceremony. Perhaps look at the word of God for throughout as that story of God looking for a bride for his son. We see that at the end of Revelation. The bridegroom and the church and the bride spotless. It's beautiful. I encourage you, read your Bible. Read the word of God. When it comes to love, the question becomes, how much effort do I put into my love? See, one of the many things I believe I've been wrong about for a lot of my life is the idea that as long as I'm not doing evil, then I'm pretty good. I'm not a murderer. Whew, good guy I am. I don't lie, I don't think, I'm good. I don't steal, I'm not a busybody, I'm not a meddler, I'm not a gossip, I'm, I don't verbally abuse people, I don't say jokes that make people feel hurt, I don't do evil things, so does that make me good? But the Bible says, it's not enough just to not do evil. Am I actively loving? It's not enough just to not say bad things. The Bible says, build each other up. Am I doing that? Do I encourage, do I encourage my wife? Do I encourage my loved ones? Do I encourage each of you? Do I actively look for ways to serve? Or do I say, well, I'm not doing bad things, so I'm pretty good. You know, it's so difficult to think that if I don't do good, that that's a sin, but it, that's what it is, isn't it? In the Bible we read to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. It's not enough just to not do bad things. I have to actively do good. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I'm going to ask you to do something here for a moment. For, for about 30 seconds, let me frame it. And when I ask you to do this, what I want you to think about is, how can I stir up this person to good works? How can I encourage them? How can I be vulnerable in the way of extending to them comfort that they may need? How can I do a good deed? How can I, not self-righteously or puffed up, but how can I truly in self-sacrificial love Stir this person up and put in effort. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you for about 30 seconds to stop looking at me, and I want you to consider each other. I want you to turn around in your pew. I want you to look at each other. I want you to make eye contact. I want you to consider each other. Will you do that for me? 30 seconds? Look around this room. Look at these people. Look at these people who have loved you. Look at these people who have encouraged you. Look at these people who have comforted you in tough times. Look at these people who have had uncomfortable conversations when they were worried about you because they loved God in the overall relationship more than they loved a friendship. Do it again. Consider each other. Look around. Look at someone you didn't look around the first time. Make that eye contact. Doesn't that increase your love? Don't forget to consider one another. A few closing thoughts, and then the lesson will be yours. I think about Jesus when he said, love God with all your heart, and then love each other. And what I'm mindful of is the fact that if I don't see God right, if I have a warped view of God, it will make it difficult for me to see others correctly and myself correctly. If my understanding, my knowledge of God is flawed or incomplete or biased, then my ability to consider others is going to be flawed and messed up and cause harm, cause offense, cause stumbling blocks. And my ability to see myself, to pay attention to myself and consider myself is going to be flawed. And I'm going to think I'm okay when I'm really not and I need to be better and I'd forget to change and forget to let my heart be softened. So the way we see God and the way we see others and the way we see ourselves cannot be separated. And you cannot love God and hate your brother. I talked to my hope for heaven. I am firmly convinced, firmly convinced that if I have a brother or sister in Christ or per, even perhaps an unbeliever who I have a problem with, if I'm like, oh, I don't like them, oh, I can't stand them. I just, they frustrate me. I am firmly convinced if I cannot get that, at least in my heart, as so far as it depends on me, worked out now, I do not know if God would let me into heaven. He doesn't let anything false into heaven. 
oh, up in heaven with brothers and sisters, it will be glory, but down on earth, same brothers and sisters, a different story? How does that make sense? Does it mean we have to always, that maybe that one person who we just, poof, always sets off our buttons? Do we have to always spend time with them and enjoy it and love it? Not necessarily, but I tell you, you need to find a way to delight in doing God's word. Not just hearing, love your brother and appreciate him and comfort and build him up or sister, give them encouragement and support. Not just hear it, but do it. God calls us to self-sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice means sacrificing what I want to do, what I want to feel, right? Because what I feel and what I know and what I need to do will be at conflict. Sometimes I may not feel like talking to that person who always trash talks Jesus. Yeah, why would you believe in Jesus? Just You know what? Ugh. But I can't let how I feel dictate what I do. I think of Jesus when he says, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And for, again, many years of my life, I believe I was thinking of that wrong. I was thinking, oh yeah, I do unto others as I want them to do unto me. But the question is, who is that you there that Jesus is talking about? We just read over the course of last minute, several scriptures about the you, right? The, the heart, your mind, your voice. It can be wrong. You can't lean on your own understanding. So make sure that that you, when you treat other people, is the you that Jesus is intending, which is the you from his sermons, the you of the example he sets, the you who is compassionate, who's a peacemaker, who blesses those who persecute him, who is humble, who is joyful, sometimes sorrowful. In fact, many times, sorrow and joy together but that you that Jesus is in mind is that true child of God. It's not the you that you think you are. In fact, how can you even define that you? Everybody has a different idea of you, don't they? If you say, well, this is me and who I am, and then you ask a hundred different people, hey, how would you describe me? You'd be surprised. Everybody has their own ideas of you, and I don't want to live a false pretense of who I am. I want to be in Jesus. I want his identity to stand for me. We just read in Hebrews, we enter into the place. I don't want to enter in with a fake ID. I don't want to come in and then worry that someone will find me out. I'm pretending to be good. I hope no one catches on. Jesus said, come in with assurance because of my blood. My identity is what you need. That's it. My identity. Let's, like John the Baptist, let's let ourselves diminish so that Jesus may increase. And the final note when it comes to love is I'll tell you that I need it. Jesus said, to whom is forgiven much, the same loves much. I can tell you I love Jesus very much. And I will tell you that I need your love. I need you. To love me. I need you to come up to me after services, during the week, with a message and say, hey David, who have you talked to about Jesus this week? Because I need to be accountable, don't I? I need to give an account of the life I'm living. I need you to come up to me and say, hey David, are you treating your wife the way you should? Is there anything you can be better at? I need you to come up to me and say, hey David, are you being a good son? You're like, well these are, why would you ask those kind of questions? They're personal. If I can't answer these questions to you, my family, now, well, you know what? God's going to ask the same questions at Judgment Day when he's 
checking the list to see whose name is in the book of life. We don't get in under our own identity. I can't say, Lord, Lord, I did a lot of stuff in your name. He'll say, I don't know you. How are you identifying yourself? I don't care. I don't know you. Jesus is our identity. So I'll tell you that I need your love. Now I'll ask you to consider one another. Read the word of God. It has so much to offer. It will change you if you let it. When I look back at all the stories in the Bible and I read of things that increase my faith, my faith in God leads me to the conclusion I am not always who I should be. When I read in his word of all the things that will come if I follow faithfully, I come to the conclusion I'm not yet what I'm going to be. The past, the future, and love for right now. Effort, right now, not later, right now. Effort, hard work, and love, and doing things you don't feel like doing, but you know you need to. And when I consider the love of God, I come to the conclusion, I'm not always who I should be. I'm not yet who I'm going to be. But praise God, I'm not who I was. I thank you for your attention. We'll have a break and then resume our service.